Yo, what's up? This is Real Sankara Hours. Real Sankara Hours, um, your favorite uh, black Marxist podcast. Um, we're going to be talking talking um, about a lot of stuff today, but follow it's us. It's a good at, one, folks. Yeah. Follow us at Sankara Hours on Twitter. Again, at Sankara Hours on Twitter. This is a free episode, um, but to keep independent black media running, um, we need, obviously, patrons and financial support. So to support us... Donate to our Patreon, patreon.com slash real hours. Again, patreon.com slash real hours. We're going we are going to be talking about um a strike that Peter covered, and then we're gonna be talking about um a relief bill in the Senate to uh um help um live music venues stay afloat. And then we're gonna talk about um the explosion in Beirut, Lebanon and uh the current situation in Zimbabwe. Um so yeah, we have a lot of really good stuff to talk about. Uh, my name is Adam Hudson. Follow me at Adam Hudson Five on Twitter. And I'm Peter. I'm Gun. Follow me at mgunpeter. There's a massive left Twitter follow spree going on, I guess. So get on it. Uh, yeah, I was driving around, uh, you know, up north, down east, as they call it in Maine, uh, on Tuesday on my day off, and I came across some striking workers for Bath Ironworks which is a naval shipyard. Uh, they build ships for the Navy with, like, destroyers. And I had heard about it, but I hadn't looked into it that much. But I thought, oh, this is a good chance to use the podcast to actually support, you know, striking workers. And so I tried to talk to some of them, but wanted to make sure that I got... Um, I tried to talk to some of them, I, you know, I wanted to make sure I got, like, I went through the right channels. They told me to come back the next day, and I, and so I did, so I came back today, and they sent me to the Union Hall, and just to sort of give, like, a visual landscape, because I'd missed the turn and ended up going over the bridge, because it's right on the water, and Bath, Maine is a company town. It's basically the shipyard is like the entire town and you can see like the giant like whatever ship that they're working on at the time. You can see the whole thing just like parked next to this small town. It really like dwarfs the size of the town. And then, you know, you turn off and directly across from the street from it is the Union Hall, which is like just this local shack. Uh, I don't say it's a shack. I mean, it's a great it's a great building, but it's pretty small for. International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers Local 6. Um, and they've had 4,300 workers on strike for seven weeks, uh, which is crazy. Uh, it's That's an, an insane amount of solidarity that's being displayed. I was able to talk to one of the workers who... He's worked there for 33 years, and he... And he was out there picketing. Um, so this is that segment. All right. So what's your name? My name is Stephen Stewart. Okay. And uh, what are you, why are you out here? I'm out here picketing Bath Ironworks for subcontracting our jobs and not giving us a fair contract, attacking our seniority. Okay. I, you, I heard the strike's been going on for seven weeks. How's that been? Well, it's been... 
it's probably seven long weeks, but it's going to go long on weeks, as long as yeah. it has to. Uh, how, do you have any sense of how long that is? I absolutely have no sense on how long that's going to be, but I mean, I don't know, know how long it'll last, but right. we're, here, we're here to go to the distance. I mean, we're not going to accept a yeah. contract like this. Okay, and why is the contract so unacceptable? It's because it's attacking seniority. Okay. One thing, and it's yeah. also open-ended subcontracting in, in the language of the contract. Yeah. And most of us are fighting for the people behind us. I've been here okay. for 33 years, and I want yeah. people to have careers like myself. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, so you guys are owned by General Dynamics. So you were working here when they bought Bath Ironworks? Yes. Uh, and how has, the, how has it been different under General Dynamics? I will say over in the last 10 years, the management has changed quite a bit. You have an experienced managers that are um, not necessarily bad people, but they don't have the experience. Right. And uh, this last couple of contracts, it's, management doesn't really listen to the workforce. Okay. Well, our leadership has done a good job, and most of the people that work here, in, in letting these guys know what to do to save costs, but really the company's ignored that. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that's, that seems to be a big problem. Well, it is a big problem yeah. because it's pretty hard to compete with subcontractors if you are executing a failing game plan, which yeah. is, even if you're the best mechanic in the world, if you're executing a failing game plan, you're going to fail. These people right. here all want this place to succeed. Right. Okay, so tell me more about the subcontractors they're trying to bring in. You know. I, I just know that they want to bring in subcontractors and... and you know, it's just, but yeah. we have Article 30, which allows a joint process where, where they sit down with the union if, they, if there's a real need for subcontractors, but okay. they want to, they want to bypass that from what okay. I understand. Yeah, does it seem like this is a conscious attempt by General Dynamics to break the union? It's what we call a manufact, manufactured crisis. Okay. It's exactly yeah. what it is. This is Union uh, Busted 101. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, so what kind of tactics have they used to divide the workers? Um, and well, I think, the, I think with their offer in the contract that they expected a lot of the newer, newer hires to, uh, to just accept the contract with a, with a bonus and what have you. But uh, <laughs> the new hires, along with the senior people here, been well educated as to what Bath yeah. Ironworks is trying to pull, what General Dynamics is right. trying to pull, because we took concessions back in 2015, December. Yeah. So, so this is clearly not based on any sort of economic need. This is not economic at all. Okay. Uh, so what generally does Bath Ironworks do? You guys are shipbuilders? We're shipbuilders. I'm in the tin shop. I do temp that. You know, everybody generally has their own trade, uh, different hard hats, a different color code, and one of the things that they want to do is they want to be able to take you from your parent trade and loan you out into a, another department for a few weeks at a time or however right. long that they see fit. Okay. And the way things are looking, the only people that are going to have a job where they know exactly what they're doing are the subcontractors that are hiring. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. Um, so, do you got you guys mostly build ships for like the Navy? 
For the Navy, yes. For the Navy? It's been our bread and butter. Okay. Um, and what does that mean, you know, to work on, you know, such an important uh, project? Like it's a that? lot of pride. I've, I mean, I've always been proud of what we do here. I mean, building ships, is a, it's a big deal. I mean, I brought my family down here to see this. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm proud to be a shipbuilder. I've done it for 33 yeah. years. I enjoy my job. I enjoy the people I work with. You know, it's, yeah. it's um, a big deal. We're doing something yeah. for our country, really, too, also. Yeah. Um, I, I was talking to someone yesterday, and they said there are, like, four, there are a bunch of different unions, like, for different parts in the shipyard. Yes. Um, how has it been, like, sort of coordinating in solidarity with them? I think that they're, they're with us. Okay. They are with yeah. us, you know. When I see them coming through the picket line, they usually have a sign on their dashboard or whatever, and we understand the situation they're in, and they're with us. Okay. So General Dynamics is obviously a giant defense contractor. General Dynamics uh, and the way that they're running business here, the people now are basically numbers. It's graphs okay. and chats. It's not, you know, it's not what it used to be. I see, yeah. Um, do you have any more questions? Um, so what's the best way for other people to show support for you guys? They come on down to the picket line, or they can listen to us. Okay. And, 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 you know, I mean, the other people out there in Maine, they're, they're taxpayers. I think that they're being duped also. Yeah. $45 million tax break. And the, and that's, that's what General Dynamics got? Yes. They got a $45 million tax break. They're not a, they're not a company that's uh, in trouble in any way, shape, right. or form, but they get the tax breaks part of their deal to stay here, right? <laughs> yeah. But yet, I'm standing out here on the picket line and seeing lights from Mississippi, Georgia, and every other place. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah, cool. Good. Uh, is, is there anything else you want to say? I just want to say that we're willing to stay out. I don't, you know, like I said, if they want to run this place like this, we'll close this place. Right. That, that's my take on it because yeah. the language that's in the contract is totally unacceptable. It's something that they want. It's not something that they need. Right. This is not about economics. This is about us fighting for the future of bath shipbuilders. Okay. And yeah, you're talking about sort of the intergenerational part of the struggle. Um, how has it been sort of, because I feel like people of my generation were not always um, as clued into like, you know, the labor struggles of the past. So how has it been sort of educating the younger workers about the need for solidarity and such? I'll tell you what, they've, they've been some of the strongest people for solidarity. They've been great. They've actually been great. They've been stand up. I mean, you know, I was concerned about that. I didn't know, I, you know we were going to be voting by phone and all of that. But yeah. No, they've been very strong. I'm, I'm proud of them. We got, you know, we got a strong future. The company learns to work with us instead of instead of against us. Okay. So one of the so some things to uh, provide context for what's going on is that uh, Bath Ironworks was is is yeah like over a century old. It's been around forever. It built a lot of the ships in used in World War II. And there is, there's been a slogan that Bath Built is best built because it's been built with union labor. And so, you know, part of, like, 
you know, whatever you think about the American uh, empire, you know, part of its strength is like, you know, quality built ships for if the Navy is going to be able to project power. Um, but they were bought by General Dynamics in 1995. And since then, um, as the as Stephen uh, mentioned, it's just been kind of a slow, you know, takeover, just all the typical kind of neoliberal crap uh, that comes that's that has shown up in, you know, ways to weaken the union, but also just replacing, you know, skilled trades with just, you know, completely like high turnover, just their big thing in this latest contract negotiation was hiring like a whole bunch of subcontractors, which is a pretty dominant trend in, uh, in, a, in, you know, that kind of manufacturing now where, it makes it, of course, even harder to organize. But also, it's just not quality. Um, the uh, the Working People podcast interviewed one of the workers at Bath Ironworks, and we'll po- post a link to that if you want more of the context. But it's just insane to me because this is really like the American empire eating itself. General Dynamics, who, as we know, if, or if you know your military defense contractors, is one of the big ones and, you know, has been involved in all sorts of heinous shit, as Adam can yeah. perhaps. <laughs> yeah, uh, just to give an example, um, I'm going to link this uh, in the show notes. This is from Defense News, came out uh, October 9th, 2018. But So General Dynamics and Aerovironment um, um, teamed up to... Be, uh, give um, combat vehicles uh, drone technology. So it says, um, General Dynamics and Aerovironment are teaming up to integrate ground combat vehicles with drone technology in preparation for two high-stakes Army and Marine Corps vehicle programs the companies announced October 8th. Um, yeah, so this is basically giving... So it also explains here, further, uh, General Dynamics land systems and Aerovironment plan to network um, GDs and... Uh, GD, I think that's, yeah, General Dynamics, entrant for the Marine Corps' uh, Armored Reconnaissance Vehicle, or ARV, program with the Drone Maker's Switchblade Missile and the Shrike 2, not Strike, but Shrike 2, unmanned Mm -hmm. aerial system still in development by the company, said Dave Sharpen, Aerovironment's head of of tactical UAS. So, yeah, UAS is uh, unmanned aerial system. So, yeah, this is, so, this is, um... That's part of what uh, General General Dynamics does, yeah. along with uh, com- companies like Lockheed Martin as well. So yeah, all all the all the best names, uh, Raytheon, you know, all the good ones. Uh, but they are also just destroying one of like the nation's proudest shipyards. Really, I would say almost for no discernible reason, except we know exactly how these sort of you know MBA type. Uh, you know, neoliberal wonks operate. It's all numbers and it's all, it's all, you know, checking boxes and getting stats up. And it doesn't matter, like, the actual quality of the work being done. And uh, in the the interview in the Working People podcast, uh, the worker mentions that, like, multiple times work that she's done has had to be redone. And, like, they're currently behind six months behind schedule and they're using that as an excuse to hire more 
subcontractors, but all of this is of management's own doing. And what, you know, in this latest round of contract negotiations, they basically, like, the contract they offered was, like, basically the equivalent of, like, spitting on your hand and, you know, then trying, offering for a shake. It's, it's extremely insulting. You know, going after seniority is, you know, basically not acceptable. And, you know, I know that kind of the Matt Iglesias uh, wonk blog types might have little opinions about uh, union bureaucracy and seniority, like holding back efficiency or whatever. But no, I mean, that what they're doing is basically like trying to get all the young people who who aren't as who at least in their minds right it's a, they're trying to pull like a generational divide where young people our generation who don't have the same kind of experience in labor struggles they can be like oh no we'll give you like a raise and a bonus and uh you know destroy all the protections that the union has given you and, but they kind of hide that part and so one of the big successes and one of the reasons they've been able to strike and be able to strike for so long is that uh, younger workers uh, really took the initiative to spread the word out about this round of contract negotiations and, you know, say, make it clear what they were up to because there's kind of a full scale PR campaign done by General Dynamics in the surrounding area and they even Check out, you know, micro-targeted Pandora ads and stuff like that about, you know, pr promoting their side of things. And, you know, typically, like, the way media covers labor disputes, it's like, oh, well, the two sides can't reach an agreement. It's like, well, no, you're not going to reach an agreement when one side is just basically intentionally trying to destroy you. There's not a whole lot of uh, agreement to be had. And, you know, you may be thinking... Um, well, you know, this is a bunch of white people and, you know, this is the military industrial complex and why should that matter? Uh, first of all, you know, uh, industrial jobs in uh, weapons manufacturing and stuff has always been a big part of black labor struggles. Uh, Adam, you probably know about the Port Chicago disaster because it happened pretty mm -hmm. near Pittsburgh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the Port Chicago disaster that happened... Um uh i'm trying to remember the year it's like 1943 so um the poor chicago disaster there's a um yeah so the reason why like part of the reason why there's a lot of black people in um in the bay area particularly uh par uh cities like oakland is because um a lot of black men moved there um uh to build shipyards um in for the u.s navy as part of world war ii so the Port Chicago disaster, that acts, literally Port Chicago is right in my neighborhood. I live right near it. Um, the Port Chicago, it happened, Port Chicago disaster happened on July 17th, 1944. Um, and there was a munitions explosion um, that killed 320 sailors and civilians and injured uh, 390 others. And most of the dead and injured were enlisted uh, black sailors. And um, there was, uh, at the time, the U.S. military was segregated. And so there was a um, mutiny by um, a lot of the black soldiers, basically, that 
during during a time of uh, military segregation, a lot of um, black sailors and workers were assigned to do some of the most dangerous work and some some of the shittiest work. So, um, so because this disaster killed so many black sailors, um, it led to this basically this uh, it became a cause celeb actually uh, against um, racial segregation. So, um. So actually, this moment, this is actually a pretty important event in civil rights history that that gets overlooked because, um, in because of what happened with the protests in the Navy against segregation and and the treatment of black sailors, um, that led to the Navy changing its practices and also, uh, basically being the um, the first branch in the military to desegregate. So before that, so really like in terms of the real, like if you were to track like civil rights history in terms of like one of the more major victories in terms of institutions that legally desegregated, it was the U S military. And it was largely because of the protests in response to the Port Chicago disaster. So, yeah. 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 So, so that's, that's part of why, you know, all these histories tie together. Um, Oh, sorry. Before I forget, this is that, this is actually, history that relates to my family uh my grandfather my late maternal grandfather he was actually in the army and he was stationed not far from port chicago he was not stationed at port chicago he because he was in the army but he was stationed in pittsburgh which is like right near it so he was stationed at another base but the um the explosion was so huge uh apparently you could i think hear it like you could feel it um like 20 miles away it was a huge explosion um but it's something yeah. i think about like holy shit like my grandfather was literally near that fucking explosion and yeah. like <laughs> i mean if he was at port chicago like i don't know if like my family would even be alive but mm-hmm. it just shows like yeah. how yeah like the some of the deep like racial terrorism of this country yeah, because that explosion happened because of, you know, lack safety regulations and mm-hmm. part of, you know, part of the struggle, part of the points of contention is basically uh, general dynamics insistence on bringing in a bunch of untrained people and not really having time to train them properly. And it seems like they're basically creating a recipe for disaster. So I said it's the empire eating itself almost. But also it's important to understand that organized labor is actually a incredible bulwark against of resistance against imperialism uh, because you know if the U- say the US finds itself in an imperial war that is just absolutely horrendous you know the the ability of organized workers in munitions factories or naval shipyards or other places like that to resist the war effort is huge and you know, examples like this happened, um, I I think in Scotland, I, I have to look this up, but I think, like, Scottish workers uh, refused to unload ships or service ships that were docking from Italy when, you know, when Mussolini invaded Ethiopia. Uh, I think Scottish workers, and I think also, like, there were, there were movements from, like, the Italian Communist Party to resist that war effort amongst workers and so organized labor is always like a key part in 
you know, fighting, you know, fighting the Imperial War Machine, you know, on its own turf. And I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if there was an understanding at at the higher ups in general dynamics that, you know, they may anticipate some more naval conflicts as, you know, we turn our attentions towards China and, you know, whatever dumb shit we're doing in Iran, that they want to take this time to really have it out and try to break the union because that wouldn't, that, you know, that would be a potential problem if there were an actual war to break out. Um, having, you know, such a incredibly disciplined union shop building the Navy ships. So even though it's, even though it seems, you know, from my perspective, like almost a national security problem to like delegate, you know, the management of, you know, one of the Navy's biggest and best shipyards to like auto zone managers, which is what's happening. Um, you know, that's, uh, that's how the empire wants to do it. And, that's but that's also why we need to support the workers in this because you know they're going against one of the most evil corporations in the world and you know they're fighting you know in unprecedented displays of solidarity so we'll put some of the info we'll put a link to the strike fund um i if you happen to be in maine and listening to this you know think about driving up to join a picket i think i'm going to go back there uh, in a you know next week or something, uh, and yeah, this is an ongoing story, and we'll come back to it because this is pretty important, and it hasn't been covered a whole lot. Yeah, and I want to uh, mention another thing about the poor Chicago uh, disaster because um, that yeah, this is like an um, I mean it's local history for me because I live literally live like a couple miles away from where this happened. But um, yeah, in 1944, uh, when there were there were protests, I mean, there's basically like mutiny and race riots uh, at Port Chicago. We're not really race riot, but there's like, I mean, just massive racial tension. Um, there is also a race riot at a naval base in Guam. And then um, there is like a, a, a thousand black men staged a hunger strike um, at another base in California over discriminatory conditions. And so that's what led the Navy in response to implement new standards and uh, also basically desegregate, integrate the Navy. So that happened around like 1945, 1946, uh, which is when the U.S. Navy desegregated. And um, that basically paved the way for the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Like once the Navy like desegregated, and then the whole military desegregated. Then you had Brown v. Board of Education, um, and then the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And yeah, like you know these these struggles, uh, you know they they are not isolated. They have um, long term consequences. So yeah, this is a story that uh, we're we're gonna pay attention to. Another story that relates to. Um, uh, the strike is also it's, it's sort of um e- economy labor related so um peter and i are both musicians and uh i've been p- performing doing a lot of virtual performances and one thing about this pandemic is that uh you, you can't play live like there's no live music like, there's no concerts no live music i mean there's no i mean i don't know when we're gonna have a coachella like the the big like mm-hmm. festival machine so um rolling stone reported this is uh i think like two weeks ago um so there's the save our stages act um 
uh, by Senators John Cornyn of Texas and Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota. This is probably one of the few oh, things I, God. I would probably sympathize with Klobuchar on, but this is not, it's not an endorsement of Klobuchar's politics. But uh, anyway, this is, I mean, well, this is like a, a bill that's like not really a contested, like partisan, highly partisan bill. So it's called right. the state. Yeah. So it's called the Save Our Stages Act. Um, and basically, so according, this is um, based on, uh, I'm, I'm reading from the Rolling Stone article. So the Save Our Stages Act would provide six months of financial support to help keep venues afloat, pay, pay, uh, pay employees, and preserve a critical economic se- sector for communities across America. Independent, mu- independent music and entertainment venues have been among the hardest hit businesses during the COVID-19 crisis. Even as some portions of the economy begin to reopen, venues will likely remain closed for the for some time as the coronavirus is believed to spread especially quickly in crowded indoor spaces. Uh, Minnesota's concert halls, theaters, and places of entertainment like First Avenue in Minneapolis, where Prince famously performed, have inspired generations with the best of local music, art, and education, Klobuchar said in a statement. This legislation would help ensure that small entertainment venues can continue to operate and serve our communities for generations to come. And then uh, Cornyn added... Texas is home to a number of historic and world-class small entertainment value, entertainment venues, many of, which, many of which remain shuttered after being the first businesses to close. The culture around Texas dance halls and live music has shaped generations, and this legislation would give them the resources to reopen their doors and continue educating and inspiring Texans beyond the coronavirus pandemic, end quote. Um, the Save Our Stages Act would ensure that relief funds only go to small independent venue operators, promoters, and talent reps. The grant, aka amount- not Live Nation, right? Exactly. Yeah, not Live Nation, and not like that the giant um, Coachella machine. This would go A-U-G, to like, yeah, yeah. This would go to basically the venues that I'm used to performing at, like these small independent venues. Like those are the ones who really got, who've been really, really hurt by this. So. Um, it says the grant amounts would be the lesser of either 45% of a business's operation cost from 2019 or $12 million. Those that receive grants would be able to use the money to cover costs incurred during the COVID-19, pa- COVID-19 pandemic, as well as pay for rent, utilities, mortgages, personal protective equipment, maintenance, administrative costs, taxes, and expenses that would allow venues to, venues to meet local and federal social distancing guidelines. Um, so anyway, like I wanted to mention that because, um, yeah, it's nice to know that, there, that this, there's some relief that will be provided to independent music venues because, um, yeah, there have been quite a few have been that have been hit very, very hard and have had to close. Um, Starry Plow in Berkeley, which has been around for a long time, great this is this is actually starry plow is a really good example of like one one of the venues that would be covered under this bill i'm pretty sure um it's been around for a long time and there's always like just different kinds of music and live performances and slam poetry every day at um starry plow i've i've performed there once at their open mic but it's it's really their open mic is really crowded and it's very it's like a lottery system. You have to like put your name in and like, you know, you get picked and whatnot. But, um, uh, they were on the verge of closing, but fortunately they got enough, um, donations to, to, 
to to survive. So um, I'm pretty sure, and I hope that they they are able to get this kind of relief because yeah, like there are a lot of music venues and small independent venues that are hurting really bad. Quite a lot of closed. So um, I think a bill like this is yeah, I, it's it's kind of it's a no brainer. I mean, it's it's not like a part highly partisan bill. Yeah. So. It's good. To, it's good to know that 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 this is uh, this is this is on the radar of the Senate. Yeah, and I want to say that right now during this COVID recession depression, there's a lot of consolidation happening. A lot mm-hmm. of a mm-hmm. lot of a lot of small businesses going under and then getting bought out by massive corporations. Um, you know, malls are failing, real estate, you know, commercial real estate, all that kind of stuff. But it would be especially tragic for you know, what what's left of small live music venues that are independent to go under because what would end up happening is they would all just get bought out by Live Nation. Right. Which will probably never be broken up, even though it's pretty blatant monopoly. Yeah. And and uh, they are also the reason why concert tickets are so fucking expensive. Yes. Yeah, that's Ticketmaster. They Ticketmaster merged or changed their name with something and then became live nation and is yeah they like they stream you know it's smaller local venues that will take chances on acts that you know can help break them and actually create new and interesting music yeah as opposed to everything sounding exactly the same so it all fits you know the predetermined aesthetic yeah that's i, I want to reiterate that yeah because that like lots those small independent venues like that's where my band and where I've been able to do solo stuff is is through those smaller venues because you can't get like those larger venues like you have to have a a a, a huge following built up and the smaller venues are willing to take their chance on like no name bands and people people artists and musicians people that people have never heard of but oftentimes the people who go to those venues that's what they want to hear they want to hear someone who's like new and fresh and and like yeah. They want to hear like yeah different different types of people, um, and because the thing is yeah yeah you never know like if you go to those those small venues if you're gonna see like you know the next um, Prince or or any or, big yeah app. or I mean okay, and sometimes you see some max that aren't so hot, but it's still <laughs> incredibly important just for anyone who's aspiring to be able to have sort of a place where they know if they work hard and practice you know that they can get a gig there and they can use that as a stepping stone as opposed to basically if everything's owned by live nation then you have to basically get signed first and then you know get sent through that machine and there aren't really local music scenes then and actually local music scenes Mm -hmm. are a pretty new phenomenon they're not always they haven't been around in every city for that long a lot of time it was just only touring acts Mm -hmm. that would come through and in these yeah these local music scenes that everyone trumpets that they love so much they had to be built and Mm -hmm. oftentimes especially for like punk and hip-hop acts they had to go they they were demonized criminal you know criminalized like people tried to shut them down a lot of times and yeah the music that you know most americans actually like and respond to it was all built through smaller venues and not through the conglomerate chains so that's definitely something that hopefully will pass uh and hopefully all those places can reopen 
Yeah, so now uh, we've talked about labor, um, the economy, music, and so now we're going to switch over to um, some international stuff. Um, so, so yesterday, yes, yeah, is last yesterday. There was a massive explosion um, in Beirut, Lebanon, and uh, yeah, so far I think a third one hundred and thirty five people are dead um Yikes. yeah it happened um uh I, I think it's like some like agricultural so there was ammonium nitrate it was sto- um stored in a beirut port for uh years apparently and then Ooh. there is this there is this um massive explosion like you know this is very very recent and fresh news so in terms of what led up to it and like if anyone else is responsible or if it was like a natural disaster or some sort of freak accident, like we don't, nothing's really been confirmed, but just the, um, man, if you see like the pictures and the videos, it's just, uh, just, just heart wrenching. I like, it's something that, um, actually hits a little bit close to home for me because, um, in college, I my minor was in Arabic, and one of my uh, professors uh, is is from Lebanon, and um, a lot of my previous uh, activism had to do with like anti-war stuff. So I I you know made a lot of friends who were from the Middle East, and many of whom were from Lebanon, and uh, they they are friends who um, I'm I'm still uh, connected with via social media, and I used to. Uh, freelance for al-akbar english which is also based in um lebanon so in beirut so um yeah when i heard the explosion in beirut like my heart just sank because i just thought about like you know al-akbar english and uh my friend's been through so much (laughs) yeah and i have i actually do have a friend um when i studied when i studied abroad at oxford I, i i uh i met a lot of friends at oxford and uh i know one of my friends it is still is living in beirut she's been living in beirut for a long time and her post was just like she was just you know upset is uh putting it very mildly she was just just horrified and just it's it's just uh yeah beirut's just been through a lot and you know it's it was beforehand it was already it was already um going through some economic troubles and and um, also and a lot yeah a lot of political protests Mm-hmm. yeah yeah political protests and they've been having trouble dealing with the pandemic as well so this is just yeah. like ugh, god i yeah my yeah my heart just sank my heart like look my heart just goes out to the people of beirut and solid nothing but solidarity and love to um everybody who's in beirut right now and and directly feeling this because it's just yeah yeah and you know yeah people shouldn't automatically assume it's terrorism just because it's an explosion in a middle eastern city uh but it also may not be out of turn to say that you know even if it were kind of an agricultural accident actually not that different from the port chicago disaster right in the sense of like a lot of explosive material that had been stored up and not you know effectively watched i mean part of that is because of the political paralysis that Lebanon faces because of the imposed sectarian uh, structure Mm -hmm. that was put in after the end of the Lebanese Civil War. And it's actually it actually 
does not lead to like effective governance. And there's mm-hmm. actually a whole thing where, um, I mean, that's what that's what most of the protests were about is this sectarian system that was basically kind of imposed by the West. And yeah. and there's a whole thing where actually Hezbollah and I'm sure they're, you know, probably right wing idiots who love to blame Hezbollah for everything are saying this was like a Hezbollah thing. But that wouldn't really make any sense because Hezbollah is really much more of a political party now. And they actually yeah. won the majority of seats in like the Lebanese parliament. But they were prevented from forming a government because of American sanctions, because they consider Hezbollah a terrorist group. So that it actually it would there would be like a Hezbollah majority government because they have a fair amount of popular support, but they can't actually carry it out because of basically just stupidly imposed. Well, not stupidly because, you know, the empire knows what it's doing, but, you know, destructive sanctions imposed on Lebanon. And so that's a big part of why there is so much instability, because it's it's basically incapable of being, you know, governed effectively and not along sectarian lines. So, yeah, all these things relate. And yeah, I just, you know, really, you know, really hope uh, it doesn't lead to any more instability because, yeah, Beirut's gone through so much. Yeah. I mean, it it used to be called... uh for a long time, the Paris of the Middle East. Um, and yeah, for those, uh, well, I'm pretty sure most of our followers are, are, you know, pretty well read, but just to kind of give some historical context, especially for the sectarianism in Lebanon that, that Peter pointed out. Um, so, I mean, going back to World War One, not World War Two, but World War One. Um, before World War One, uh, the Ottoman Empire controlled what we now call the Middle East and in much of North North Africa. Um, so uh, the, the, during World War One, it was Britain, France, and the United States on one side versus um, uh, Germany, Italy, um, and the Ottoman Empire. Russia uh, was on the Britain and France side. Yeah, yeah. And then um, in the middle of World War One, uh, the Russian Revolution happened, and uh, that the Russia stance, uh, yeah, pretty much. Like, I, I think um, Russia's role in World War One was. Uh, yeah, they had, they had to get different. out of that. It's mm-hmm. yeah, we we won't get into the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, other than to say <laughs> that the reason we know about the Balfour Declaration of 1912, which mm-hmm. was the declaration I think put out by the British government that declared, that basically reserved what was then called the British Mandate of Palestine, mm-hmm. you know, for or for uh, for Zionism is because when the Bolsheviks took power, they basically printed all these secret treaties in the exactly. newspaper and exposed all of the Russian Empire's dealings. So that's, you know, it's a good thing to know. Yeah, and uh, uh, related to that, this is, this is why I brought this up. Um... Uh, during World War One, there was a secret agreement that um, Britain and France made uh, to basically split up the Ottoman Empire, yeah. uh, and and basically carve out their own spheres spheres of influence called the the Sykes Picot Agreement. So, right, um, sorry, not the Balfour Declaration, Sykes Picot. Yes, yeah, Sykes Picot Agreement. Yeah. So um, the Brit, yeah, the British mandate in Palestine was under the Sykes Picot Agreement. Um, the British. Uh, were basically so the British sphere of influence under the Sykes Picot Agreement was uh, present day um, Israel, Palestine, Jordan, and Iraq. 
and then France was going to get Syria and Lebanon. So yeah, like after the Russian revolutions, the Bolsheviks basically stole the documents and and leaked and basically leaked the uh, copy of the Sykes-Picot Agreement. So World War One ends. Uh, Ottoman Empire collapses, is defeated. Um, so is uh, Germany and Italy. Um, and, uh, and obviously, like you know, the the conditions for World World War Two are laid because of the the reparations, massive reparations that Germany has to pay for World War One. Um, but yeah, like, so the, the borders of the Middle East that we know of today were drawn up by the Sykes-Picot Agreement by Britain and France. And so when France, uh, basically colonized Lebanon, um, they used a, uh, the Maronite Christian minority as, as the ones to, uh, they gave them the most power in Lebanon's political system. Um, at the expense of the Arab Muslims and, and everybody else. so that, which, is, which is classic colonial tactics. <laughs> yep, yep, yeah. So that that sectarian, um, the sectarianism that you see in Lebanon's political system is a result of that. Which, yeah, that goes yeah. back basically like, you know, the roots of it were planted like over 100 years back in 1917. 1917. 1917, yeah. Sykes-Picot Agreement. And um, yeah, Lebanon is still dealing with the ramifications of that to this day yeah because you know there's kind of a stereotype where like in the middle east you know different religions don't know how to get along but actually until the lebanese civil war like there would be mosques next to churches and everything was fine but it's basically like western meddling in the lebanese civil war and yes the you know the intentional elevating of one minority group um which you know what the reason they do that is because then that group you know kind of owes its loyalty to the colonial power in order to survive and you know it, it makes them much more precarious and so you know a united lebanon is uh a united functioning lebanon is no friend to um western imperial interests in the region much less you know israel and so yes the need to sort of create uh, Lebanon in a kind of permanently, you know, frac- fractured state, which, I mean, they really basically did the same thing to Iraq. Um, yeah. When the U.S. invaded Iraq and kind of imposed, like, this mandatory sectarianism thing, which they said, you know, is the gu- under the guise of, like, you know, combating sectarianism, but that's not what they're doing at all. It's, in you know, basically, perm- you know, permanently paralyzing the state by making it be like okay the prime minister has to be this and the president has to be this and you know all that kind of stuff and so yeah it's it's a it's a very hard situation to get out of and it is yeah directly uh it's directly traced back to colonial legacies and so when people talk about like the middle east problems you always have to foreground that in terms of (laughs) creating the situation creating these situations that are basically impossible to ever resolve which is by design because imagine like a united arab world that like was united and strong enough that it could be a world power like how fucking freaked out would europeans be then you know Mm -hmm. so yeah and uh speaking of um uh, colonial imposed uh divisions and imperialism um let's let's turn to africa in zimbabwe and um 
like I did with the mm-hmm. Middle East, I'll, I'll give some historical context that actually that actually directly ties into Zimbabwe, but also um, the the Pan African activism I'm, I'm currently involved in. So, um, in uh, eighteen eighty four. 1884 1885 um berlin conference uh peter did you were you were you ever taught about the berlin conference in high school Uh, they in ap euro i think they like there's like a paragraph about it right um they they briefly mentioned it but certainly not nearly as much time as to spend on the fucking 30 years war jesus christ yeah so um 1884 1885 there's a scramble for africa and so the all the European colonial powers powers basically got together, um, kind of like with the Middle East, the Sykes Pico Agreement. The reason why the British and French got interested is because uh, they discovered oil in the Middle East. So beginning of the yeah. 20th century, cars start. You know, that's like when cars are becoming more prominent. The use of automobiles, and so what do you use to power automobiles? Yeah. Oil and gas. And so in um, I think it's like the Late 1800s or early 1900s is when um, I think the British and the United States discovered uh, oil um, around uh, Saudi Arabia. So that's when they, that's when the West was like, oh, there's a lot of oil here and we need oil to power cars and ships. So uh, we want to take control of this. Same with Africa. Africa still to this day has really is like in, in terms of like the world's resources, like it's all of it's like in Africa. Like there's plenty of resources in Latin America and Asia, but especially now, like Africa is is arguably the most resource rich continent on the planet. And this is what the West, you know, back in the 1800s knew. So in 18 and, and also as uh, as nationalism was growing in Europe, you know, all these European countries they felt a little constrained. They needed you know room to bust out, move around, make some Lebensraum. As it were. So, you know, obviously they had to colonize Africa. And mm-hmm. I, I was I'm trying to remember who was saying it. You know, I, it might have been. I don't remember. But he was saying that, the you know, the idea that Europeans didn't know how to cooperate and they just always fought each other. It's not true. They cooperated perfectly in the Berlin Conference. They oh, knew yeah. exactly what to do. Yeah. Um, except except Italy, who hadn't who got left out in the cold until Mussolini showed up. But uh yeah, so yeah. the Berlin, the Berlin conference. I mean, speaking of Italy, so so this is so similar to how the Sykes-Picot Agreement, where the Europeans basically carved out their spheres of influence in the Middle East. The Europeans did the same in Africa in uh, 1884, 1885 at the at the Berlin Conference. So speaking of Italy, um, in in 1913, uh, around 1913, or at the time of 1913, it's probably I think earlier, but Italy had control over most of Libya. Um, most of Somalia and pretty much all of um, present-day uh, er- Eritrea. Um, but in terms of Africa, the way it got split up, most of West Africa went to France. So they got Algeria, Mali, uh, part of Morocco, all of Tunisia, present-day Chad, Niger, Mauritania, Senegal, um, Guinea, Ivory Coast, and uh, I think pre- present-day Benin. Um, and also... Uh, part of um, uh, Cameroon. So the French got like a ton of West Africa. The British, they were obsessed with East Africa. So if you know Cecil Rhodes, he wanted to build a railroad that is basically from uh, Cairo to Cape Town, Cape Town in South Africa and Cairo in Egypt. 
Cecil Rhodes wanted to build like a massive railroad that went from that extended from the furthest north in Cairo, Egypt, and then further south, all the way south to Cape Town in South Africa. So the British controlled present-day Egypt, uh, uh, Sudan, um, present present-day uh, Kenya, uh, Zambia, Zimbabwe, South Africa, and then also like a little uh, parts of um, West Africa. So they got control of over. Uh, um, Ghana, Nigeria, um, Sierra Leone, then um, Germany got uh, Tanzania, Namibia, um, and most of uh, Cameroon. Um, Portugal got Angola and Mozambique. And by the way, like Angola and Mozambique, like Portugal had those for a long time, especially because of the slave trade. Um, and then oh, I want to make sure uh, Spain didn't get much. They got Equatorial Guinea, but at this time, like Spain was yeah. pretty much yes. like they were Spain falling apart. Spain was done. Spain was as an empire. Yeah. So, like Spain, I want to say this about Spain. Like they're like the fail sons of colonialism. Like th- I they, think they, they busted too early. Is what yeah, they did. Pretty they much. They yeah. they weren't methodical like the British. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, Belgium controlled the present day <laughs> Democratic Republic of Congo. So King Leopold, look up King Leopold. He's resp- he is basically the uh he is basically Africa's Hitler in terms of the, the number of people he killed in, yeah, in the Belgian yeah. Congo. And no, also really fucking terrible guy. Yeah, and also the Congo is a source of most of the world's coltans, which powers pretty much all of our electronic devices, by the way. Um, and a lot of a lot of the raw materials that we need to power so much of the stuff we use, a lot of it can be found in Africa. Um, so that relates to the situation in Zimbabwe. So um, I'm sure as you guys know, like when Robert Mugabe was in power, he uh, he made this controversial land reform policy where basically he just told the uh, white people. The white settlers. Let's get this clear. They're set. There yeah, were settlers yeah. in Zimbabwe, <laughs> yes. which connect connects to the the Berlin Conference and the the Brit the basically the British putting basically controlling um, Zimbabwe as part of his sphere of influence and co- colonialism in Africa. Like I said, the French mostly got West Africa. The British got East Africa. So Zimbabwe is in like East Africa, well S- Southern Africa, but like on the eastern part. Um, so Zimbabwe, yeah, like they're there were white settlers, colonizers in Zimbabwe who controlled most of the land in Zimbabwe for a long time. And then Mugabe got in power. He's like, all right, you need to give that land back. Um, they didn't like it. The white people yeah. in Zimbabwe did not like it. Well, but... well they, they insisted, you know, like the uh, slave owners in Haiti, that they be compensated for their loss of property. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Mugabe, who is pretty villainized in Western media now, but that's all because of, you know, this expropriation. He was a pretty celebrated figure, or at least warmly received up until that point. And when people talk about Zimbabwe's economic troubles, basically all of that stems from the World Bank sanctioning the shit out of Mugabe for doing this expropriation. Mm-hmm. Right. So recently... Um, this happened basically last week. So the Zimbabwe government agreed last Wednesday to pay $3.5 billion in compensation to white quote unquote farmers. They're settlers. Let's get this clear. Cause in, in, in the yeah. mainstream, in the mainstream press, they're calling them farmers, which sounds very like kind of banal and innocuous, but yeah, no, like, they're like colonizers. These... They were yeah, settlers. And, 
Yeah, and they're not, and they're not even just like you know, you're like yeoman farmer who like gets up at the crock, of, you know, crow of the rooster and work. No, these guys are like planner class. I mean, they're yeah. they own large estates. Calling them farmers is kind of a misnomer. I mean, they're basically, you know, agribusiness types. And mm-hmm. yeah, they, you know, it's important to understand with Zimbabwe that it's actually basically the only really decolonized settler state because. Uh, in the 70s, uh, I think is when it happened, uh, Rhodesia basically tried to declare independence from the British Empire. And, you know, they were not very good at it. And then basically pretty quickly after that, lost uh, to the ZANU-PF, which was the Liberation Front led by Mugabe. And he, yeah, he had basically been in power since the creation of Zimbabwe. So when you talk about decolonization, Zimbabwe is actually the only real world example we can turn to so if anyone gets glib about it you know or it's like oh psh, Mugabe psh. I mean you do need like a little more humility is required if you're serious about decolonizing Turtle Island and stuff like that yeah yeah and Mugabe I mean he has a he has a very um complex record but yeah the the, mm-hmm. the, the, the you know so but the thing that he's known for is basically just just kicking the white colonizers out of his country uh the country and basically expropriating their property and so right now under the current government um emerson uh nangawa um i hope i'm pronouncing his name right if if i am i apologize if i am pronouncing it incorrectly i apologize um but yeah the current president of zimbabwe basically um uh basically signed this 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 deal to compensate white farmers but the thing is Zimbabwe doesn't have enough doesn't have the money. <laughs> they do not have the money to actually pay the compensation. So they're going to issue long-term bonds and also approach international donors to raise the funding. So so they're yeah. paying Zimbabwe's paying 3.5 billion dollars to compensate former white settlers money that the Zimbabwean government does not have. So they got to like, okay, like we don't have this money, but we're going to give it to these white people and we're going to like uh, issue like a long-term bond and ask other people to help raise money. And now, so there's this um, movement going on in Zimbabwe because uh, there's a lot of opposition. So I, I'm in an organization um, called Global Pan-Africanism Network. I'm officially like a, a member of the organization. Um, I'm a... a, a you could say I'm a representative based here in the United States. We have representatives a- around the globe, including um, Kenya, Dominican Republic, um, uh, the UK, elsewhere. Basically, it represents the entire like African continent, African diaspora. Um, so yeah, like obviously GPN, like we're pretty pissed at this. Um, mm-hmm. And there's also been protests against uh, the Zimbabwe Zimbabwean president. Um, and he's been harshly cracking down um, on opposition members, government critics, and uh, other activists. Um, his he's allegedly uh, well, apparently, um, his government security forces are carrying out illegal ab- abductions. By the way, very similar to the abductions we've been seeing by by uh, federal agents in Portland, people just, just snatching people off the street for protesting. Very similar in Z- in Zimbabwe. So people have been protesting against um, uh, the. Uh, Large, largely like a myriad of stuff um a lot of it has to do with the economy but I, I wanted to mention this because there's if you follow the hashtag zimbabwean lives matter on social media you can follow more details but um a, a lot of the 
I think what's a lot, uh, driving a lot of the protests is the economic situation in Zimbabwe. But like, he just passed this fucking compensation bill, three point five yeah. billion dollars in money that the Zimbabwe does not have. So it's like, oh, you're just that's just creating the grounds to just piss off people even more. So yeah. in the Pan African chats I'm in, like people are just pissed at this, and this is this. Uh, the reason why I mention this is because Pan Africanism as an ideology, I think it. Uh, I think it gets misinterpreted by people, by a lot of white people and others, uh, even a lot of black people who don't like Pan-Africanism is basically, um, it's not a call for an ethno state. So I want to make that clear. Pan-Africanism does not equal a single ethno state. What it really means is it's actually an ideology that, that was born during a slave trade in the diaspora to unite all people of African descent together in solidarity to oppose slavery and colonialism. Um, if you look up Paul Cuffey um, and also Martin Delaney, they are both African-American abolitionists who are basically like the early forefathers of Pan-Africanism Pan and they advocated um, black people going back to Africa and, and uh, resettling. But and now with the con uh, one and then after slavery, then comes the Berlin Conference and European colonialism in Africa and drawing up these borders. Now Pan -Af Pan Africanism is basically uh, reunification and solidarity between all people of African descent for collective self determination and militantly opposing imperialism and racism. Pan-Africanism is basically like incredibly opposed to slavery and also colonization, especially because like the nation-state borders in Africa are colonial constructs. They're a creation of colonization, of European yeah. colonialism. And even um, independence in Africa, a lot of the leaders who were left in place are basically just managers of the infrastructure that the European colonizers left. So Europe is still in Africa, especially in terms of um, the control it has over Africa's economy and other parts of its infrastructure. So there is self, there's basically self rule in Africa, but there's not real independence. Like there's no real independence that Africa yeah. has from Europe. So yeah, on an economic level, exactly. And, and Zimbabwe is like the perfect example of that because Mm -hmm. Yeah, the IMF and the World Bank can just completely destroy their economy, you know, over violating some, you know, I mean, really quite stupid rule, um, you know, right. And, but of course, then, you know, they'll probably, I mean, I think the hope um, by Ramaphosa, I guess, uh, is, you know, that he'll, that the IMF will come crawling back and they'll help, you know, give out loans and stuff. Uh, if if Zimbabwe makes nice, but you know, I I wouldn't hold out hope for that. Um, yeah, um, yeah. So uh, uh, keep keep following. Like we're gonna. Um, this is probably like the first time I think we really uh, like covered an issue in Africa. But this is something actually like you know, in addition to the labor stuff, um, you know, we're gonna be uh, paying attention paying attention to what's going on in Africa and the diaspora because yeah, this is a black pan-african marxist podcast and uh you know like this these are issues that we care about we want to cover and it's also a lot of stuff these are issues you're not going to see um in other types of media um which is why you should support us but yeah like this so i want to lay out like um because i think there is a lot of 
ignorance here in the West, in particularly the United States, about first of all, like I mean, the United States like is ignorant about the world, period. Mm-hmm. But it's especially ignorant about Africa. So I want to lay out like for Lebanon the Sykes Picot Agreement and the drawing up of the borders there, and also with Africa the Berlin Conference, the drawing up of the borders. Pan Africanism as an ideology is basically to 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 heal the wounds created by european colonizers and by slavery like all the divisions that we have as black people are really imposed by colonialism the the separation between african americans and black cubans and black brazilians and and dominicans like those divisions that we separate each other from is because of slavery like the the separation was caused by where the slave ship dropped us off and then the separation in terms of colonial borders in africa between Nigeria, between Tanzania, between Ghana, and all these different countries, um, those were imposed by the Europeans. Of course, like there's, di- there's multiple ethnic groups in Africa, but they're not the ones who dis- who drew up the borders. Like there yeah. was still freedom of movement between different ethnic groups and tribes and all that, but they're not the ones who decided to create this nation called Nigeria or Ghana and how the borders looked. And that's created, yeah, a lot of um, uh. uh political it it has not worked in africa's interest let's just say that and i think what zimbabwe was going on here with this compensation to white settlers this 3.5 billion dollar compensation to white settlers a lot of that is like that basically um the zimbabwean government trying to mend its ties with the west and so which shows like even with independence uh there still is this neo-colonial relationship africa has with europe so zimbabwe yeah it's it's a very very uh good example of that especially this story so um yeah that's why pan-africanism i think uh is important um yeah Uh, just want to issue a correction i said ram cyril ramaphosa is the president of south africa sorry oh got that one got that one mixed up but also if you like if like Here's a good way to think about it. If you look at like a, the map of a map of Africa or also the Middle East and you see there's just these lines, these giant diagonal lines that cut across the Sahara Desert. And, you know, you think like, how is that ever enforceable? How is that ever like be able like how could you ever find that or anything like that? You know, most national borders are at least based around some river or some mountain, some kind right. of national barrier. When you see like these these giant lines just straight lines, and it's the same thing with Jordan and Iraq and Saudi Arabia. Just these straight lines that kind of go in all kind of jagged directions. That's the Berlin Conference. That's you know a bunch of white dudes in a room with a map, just being like, "All right, well, let's draw it this way. Do, do you like that?" I'm like, "No, I don't like that. Move it like three thirty degrees to the right." Okay, we'll draw it this way, and that's yeah, basically how your country's borders were formed almost arbitrarily and yeah they don't mean they're 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 not even you know a product of actual political conflict or natural barriers or anything like that they're yeah completely irrespective of the actual national natural boundaries or whether like one group of people lived on one side and now they lived on on another side or you're just splitting up people's you know arbitrarily and now people who've been, you know, one people for hundreds of years are in two different countries, you know, stuff like that. It's, 
it's it's dumb and it's terrible and you know that the reason that pan pan africanism like these pan national movements arise and are important is because sort of a more narrow nationalism just can't work right right yeah that's the thing that's the thing that that that's why i i i separate pan-africanism from black nationalism i mean i think black i, I think sometimes white people get too scared of black nationalism but it's like look it's, it's a serious ideology just just like any other but it's like you can still have your disagreements with it but um like black nationalism to me is like a little bit too um nation state focused like so um that's why i said pan-africanism is not an ethno state which is i think like i've seen a lot of um a few like white leftists on twitter just really misread the uh black revolutionary politics and and yeah something like pan-africanism it's, it's it's fear of savage reprisal is what it is it's basically like oh if we give the negroes their own country then they're gonna start killing white people everywhere and like same thing oh if we do if we give the land back then they're gonna kill all the white people and it's like no that's that's not what's what's going to happen you know but at the same time you won't be able to control the situation because you won't have power anymore and right so they're afraid of that but it's a lot of like sort of fear-mongering in their paranoid imaginations about what's going to happen to them and so they say things like ethno state when it's kind of like you know that i don't know what that means like america's a white ethno state that's that's like the immigration policies were designed oh yeah to make it as such so I, mean, I don't know what you mean when you're talking about ethno states. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean, fuck. You can even apply ethno state to ma- many Latin American countries with their whitening po- policies, mm-hmm. blanqueamento and branqueamento policies. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, Ar- that... Argentina. What's good? Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, like you know, uh, although like if you look at the demographics of a lot of Latin American countries, uh, you could say like maybe like they're a sort of whitening approach to it. In- fully work yeah. uh because there's still a lot of black people and indigenous people in those countries but if you i mean if you look at spain's colonization in latin america like they were trying to create ethno states in latin america like the the idea of like you know whitening and bettering the race like that's fucking eugenics that's racial eugenics to get a like a maintain a white power structure which is yeah like trying to create um an ethno state so it's like yeah like when when white people create ethno states where they control things like they don't call it an ethno state even though like yeah if you look at Im- like certain immigration policies that are passed the goal is to maintain white control and white superiority which is yeah that's that's a white ethno state um but yeah pan africanism is like i mean in any of those like similar movements it's like look like it's really to to correct that imbalance like okay it's basically look like white people can't have this much fucking control like yeah you don't you don't get to you don't get to determine people's future that's the thing like you like white people shouldn't have like they don't have the right to be to go to the middle east and be like oh we found oil you know what let's just drop these fucking borders yeah okay so france what do you want uh we're gonna get this 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 right here, uh, we're gonna call it uh, this place Syria and Lebanon, and Britain's like, okay, uh, we're gonna get just, just you know this it's place on Iraq. We're gonna get this place uh, called Mesopotamia and then Iraq, and then we're drawing up these borders, and then go to Africa and be like, all right, Br- uh, Britain, what do you want? Well, we want to build a. There's this guy named Cecil Rhodes who wants to build a giant fucking railroad from Egypt to South Africa. So okay, Britain, you get East Africa. France, what do you want? Well. 
we think Algeria is ours, uh, so we get all of Algeria and everything below and next to it. Okay, and then I forgot to mention that Spain, I, 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 I got to do a quick correction. They did get Equatorial Guinea, but they also did get part of Morocco. So Morocco was actually right. split up by France and Spain. So uh, France got the part of Morocco that's closest to Algeria, whereas Spain got the northern tip of morocco like where gibraltar is and then they got southern morocco um, slash western sahara uh the part of morocco that borders mauritania and mauritania was colonized by france so was mali so yeah i mean like that's a that's a result of a, a small group of white men who just wanted a, all the world's fucking resources for themselves and were like hey this is ours um we're not going to listen to anybody like we're not going to listen to the people who live on on these lands we're just going to take shit we're going to drop those borders and if they don't like it we're going to kill them uh so it's like you know when there are nationalist movements that emerge in these countries like i don't think white people like you know <laughs> i like you don't really have the moral high ground to complain about it you know because you, you created the condition for those nationalist movements to emerge in the first place by colonizing shit so maybe if you don't colonize stuff uh there wouldn't be this need for these types of uh nationalist movements uh but you know that's not to say like i don't think nationalist movements are bad in and of themselves but it's like you know those movements exist because of yeah a small group of white men drawing up those borders and taking shit for themselves um and establishing well, you know white people just want everyone to get along except when they actually do start to get along they're like oh wait no not like that you know right yeah and then and then they stop doing all the the uh hold hands in a circle stuff once you know once the imperial subjects actually start cooperating then it's then it's back to oh no don't you guys all hate each other <laughs> let me give you let me give a whole bunch of weapons to one group of people and let's make you guys fight it out for another four decades um and also like pan-africanism i mean but before we cut out because we're close i mean Pan-Af- pan-africanism is like also part of it which i think is important but gets overlooked is um it, it does stress like descendants of the transatlantic slave trade to reconnect with africa which is like if you're not black it's going to be hard for you to understand so i'm not going to expect you to understand on that level but i will say this that like when when your ancestors are ripped from you know this massive continent called africa and all of your uh so much of your immediate ties to your original indigenous cultures were ripped from you um that's pretty fucked up and it does a lot of psychological damage so pan-africanism is it's a way to heal those wounds to reunite um black people in the diaspora with the african continent and even like the african continent was also impacted by the slave trade i mean families were literally ripped from each other you know and it that causes very serious um intergenerational trauma that again if you're not black it's gonna you can know it in theory but you're not gonna know it on that deep of a level yeah, so because that, it, it, it it does get inherited genetically actually. yeah <laughs> it does yeah so like you know if if you know if you're not black like you know i don't think you really have a right to um tell black people how we should heal ourselves collectively but i will say like look just respect th- th- uh these kinds of politics and these movements on their own terms especially if you really care about stuff like black lives matter like look if 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 you support black lives matter like you better be in it like 100 percent. otherwise like you know mm-hmm. step aside 
but um anyway i wanted uh, yeah that's we're at um uh, an hour 11 that's that's enough but yeah we talked about um labor strike uh cover the whole gamut from yeah. uh, from domestic to international you know class struggle at home and abroad so yep um uh, i don't know I don't, I don't have much else to say other than subscribe to the patreon uh if you there is a new podcast in town um there you know another entry into the podcast game one michelle obama and if you want to know our opinion on that you should subscribe because that will be our next patron episode so exactly yeah yeah so yeah we're going to talk about the michelle obama podcast for our patrons but for those of you listening to this free episode for free if you want to listen to that episode you should subscribe to us patreon.com slash real car hours five dollars a month gets you that michelle obama podcast episode we're going to do we're going to talk about that so if you want to hear us our our hot take on the obama podcast well donate five dollars a month to patreon.com slash real sun car hours and also support other black independent media content resistance noir follow them uh we're part of the resistance noir network and also support the other podcasts on it drop squad and also the vanguard army um i've been doing uh, uh live streams on the resistance noir twitch stream so um peter is on with me uh, on a previous one where we discussed Kwame Ture's Black Power. By the way, speaking of Kwame Ture, <laughs> we talked about him in our in our last bonus episode in yeah. our hot and our hot well, take on Bill Clinton's. Yeah, we we anti- we basically manifested Bill Clinton's idiocy into being. You know, we we are we somehow are prescient with the discourse. We talk about something and then it ends up being a you know a main topic of discussion. So you know. That's why you should check us out. That's why you should keep listening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, keep in touch also with Resistance Noir and also the the, the Twitch streams. There's some really good Twitch streams on the Resistance Noir by the, the other Resistance Noir, uh folks. So definitely check that out. And uh, I I've I've been getting used to and liking doing the tri- Twitch streaming. So um, yeah. So I uh, usually I I do them every saturday or every other saturday on under just which is on swan twist dreams so um pay attention to that uh i have you know stuff 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 planning on talking about um lily from vanguard army normally co-hosts with me um so yeah check out lily and aaron of vanguard army they're they're pretty good so if you like our stuff like our like basically like black leftist political commentary vanguard army is very similar so um yeah i would definitely support support us and support them too support all the dope uh black uh commentators black left commentators out there because yeah like we need to build real independent black media support each other support support all this stuff and support us www.patreon.com slash real song car hours five dollars a month gets you that episode where we're going to talk about Michelle Obama's mm-hmm. podcast. That's not going to be for free. This one's for free. That one's not. Yeah. So anyway, to sign off, keep the faith. And stay dangerous. Peace. See ya.